I'm needing a lot more help these days. <clears throat> I am thankful to have this opportunity and to be able to be with you. I'd, I'd have been glad just to have been here tonight to hear the preaching and be with you and, and not said a word. Just bless my heart. And I'm thankful for this congregation of people. Always encourages me to see you still holding forth the word of truth. I'm thankful for this pastor. I love to hear him preach. I love to sing his hymns. Yes, the Lord's blessed him to write some <clears throat> wonderful hymns. I love to love to sing them, all glorifying God, all true to Scripture. I want you to turn tonight, first of all, to John chapter 3. I'm going to read one verse of Scripture in the beginning. And it's the last verse. Verse 36. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. In the Bible... And not only the Bible, but in history and presently and for all eternity, we find two groups of people. We find two lines among Adam's race that are not only seen but distinguished from Genesis to Revelation. They are described and they are distinguished by God Himself. Those two groups or two lines are sometimes called the sheep and the goats. They're sometimes called vessels of mercy and sometimes vessels of wrath. Sometimes they're called the children of God. And then some are told, you are of your father, the devil. They're described as saved and lost. There's some to be already in heaven and some already in hell. Some going to heaven and some going to hell. And they're not only spoken of in general terms, but they're spoken of 
individually, such as those in whole families, like as was in the first family. There was this man, Abel, and then there was another brother by the name of Cain. And he says to us, don't go the way of Cain. He distinguishes. We find the same thing amongst Noah's family. And especially among Abraham's sons, one by the name of Isaac and the other by the name of Ishmael. They're distinguished in those two men by names, the children of promise and the children of the bondwoman. The children of promise and the children of the flesh. And then they're even distinguished these two lines among twins who had the same mother and the same father raised in the same place and in the same environment with the same opportunities, one by the name of Jacob and the other by the name of Esau. And if you look over in Romans chapter 9, the apostle, in speaking of these very ones, makes it so very clear. He says in Romans 9 and verse 9, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. That was Isaac, the child of promise. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, said unto her by God, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved but Esau have I hated. Now, there is no difference in any of these people, all of them being the descendants of fallen Adam, there is no difference in them by nature. And yet, it is equally true that there are some who are distinguished and a difference is made and the Scripture says it is God that makes them to differ. 
You see, if left to themselves, there would only have been one line. A steady, solid procession from Adam all the way down to the last person living on this earth, marching straight into hell. But it says that God made some of these people to differ. And it says, as it does concerning his national people, Israel, that he'd have everybody know that he has made a difference and distinguished among men and shown forth grace and mercy to some. And automatically we always ask the immediate question, why? And the very first thing that I'd have you to know and the very first thing that I'd have you to say is simply because he would. And because he could. Because he is the absolute sovereign Ruler over all things and all peoples. And as he says himself, he can do with his own what he will. Isn't it amazing how men and women claim for themselves the very thing that they deny of God? I'll do with my own stuff what I will. God says, all souls are mine. And he can do with his own what he will because he rules and he does what he does justly and he does what he does in infinite wisdom. And if we have to be reminded, like Nebuchadnezzar was, the kind of God with whom we have to do, he'll do it. He says that he rules and does all his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of men, the inhabitants of this earth, and no one can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? Some of the old theologians used that verse to show what they called the leisure of the eternal. Not only does he do what he will, to whom he will, he does it when he will, and he can neither be slowed or hurried or stopped. He does this in grace and mercy because he would and because he can. And not only that, the Scripture says that he does it to demonstrate or to make known his power. And he gives us in this very chapter, Romans 9, as well as elsewhere in Scripture, the great example saying himself of this man Pharaoh, for this cause I raised you up 
that I might show my power in you. And then we know, according to this book, that he does this. He makes this distinction to glorify his grace in his elect and in his saving them to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul says about three times in Ephesians 1, all to the praise of the glory of his grace. And then not only that, but also, and so sobering it ought to be to us, He does it to show His wrath. He says that He is willing to show His wrath and to do so justly in the matter of all sin and especially in the condemnation of sinners outside the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only do we find this all the way through this book, from the very earliest opening examples all the way to the end of this book, but we oftentimes find it side by side in verses and side by side in a couple of verses. While we're looking here at Romans chapter 9, look down at verse 22. The Apostle Paul says, By the Spirit of God, what if God, God who has just been likened to a potter, who hath power over the same lump of clay to make one thing or the other, what if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. You think they fitted themselves to it? He's just been talking about the potter who hath power over the clay. And you can run to this scholar or you can run to this commentator all you want to, and when you come back to this verse, it's still going to say, vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory. And then, Paul, as a saved by grace Jew, says not only of himself and other Jewish believers, but also of the Gentiles that the Lord is pleased to say, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Two lines, two groups, always clearly and definitely distinguished. And that's what we find, I believe it is John the Baptist here, just like the Lord Jesus Christ doing 
in that last verse, the verse we read in John 3, verse 36. Look at it again. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. That's one line, one group. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. That's another line. Same two lines. But when he says that, if you notice, he further describes the terrible state and standing of that second group when he says, but the wrath of God abideth on him, remains on him. Now that word wrath there in the Greek and I use the same type sources of educating myself that the brother mentioned. What the writers and the students and scholars of the Greek language say of that word wrath, it is defined in manners and words like this. Violent passion. Ire, justifiable abhorrence, punishment, anger, indignation, vengeance. Now, most people in our day they know nothing, and they don't want to know anything about God being a God of wrath. You see, religion in our day has sought to pacify the consciences of men and women by portraying God only as a God of love. But were he not a God of holy, just wrath, there'd be no need for mercy or grace. No need for the good news of the gospel. As a matter of fact, no need to be here tonight. But the wrath of God is essential to His holy character. And unlike our sinful anger, He commands us in all respects not to be angry, especially at our brother who's a sinner just like we are. But our, unlike our sinful anger, His is a sinless anger. 
and his is a righteous indignation, and his is a just vengeance, and it is because of sin, and that sin being against him. I know what we like to do. We like to categorize sin. Big sins, medium-sized sin, big sins, and then those big gollywhopper sins. But like somebody said a long time ago, there's no little sin because there's no little God to sin against. He's infinitely holy. He's inflexibly just. He's angry at the wicked every day. You say, oh yeah, the wicked. Who are the wicked? That's every person outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the man on the pew. That's the harlot on the street. Every person outside of Jesus Christ. And everyone outside of Christ, these wicked ones as he describes them, he says the wrath of God remains on them. You know, the Old Testament is full of demonstrations of God's wrath and judgment. As a matter of fact, you and I don't know how many people there were, but I absolutely ensure that there were a lot of them in Noah's day when he sent the flood and destroyed every living thing on this earth except those that were on that ark. He destroyed every person, young or old. You know, you surely remember about Sodom and Gomorrah when the Bible says that he just simply rained down fire and brimstone out of the sky and destroyed not only Sodom and Gomorrah, but the cities of the plain. And he destroyed every living one except Lot and his two daughters. Everybody. Young, old, whatever they were, whoever they were. And then how many times, how many times did God, to such people as the whole Syrian host or whatever army it was that came up against His earthly people, He just moved in the night and literally slew hundreds of thousands of men. Poured out His wrath. Wipe them off the face of the earth. And what about that night in Egypt when in every household there arose a cry and a scream, an agony of heart and mind when it was discovered that the firstborn in every household in Egypt, God killed them. You see, He's poured out His wrath on Individuals, kings, nations, the whole earth. And when we come to the New Testament, some would like for us to kind of think that, 
when the New Testament came about and when Jesus came as the end of all that stuff. I'm sorry. And just like it was said, it was to the most moral and religious people that were on the earth at that time that John, when he saw them and some of their responses, first when they began to hear him preach, he says of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that came to him in for baptism or came to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's what he was saying to those good folks. And then the Apostle Paul, when he begins to write and to talk about things as he does in the book of Romans, which is the, maybe the chief book of doctrine in all of Scripture, maybe. He says in the first chapter, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God. He says in the chapter, in the next chapter, Romans 2, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I hear foolish people say, well, I just want God to do right by me. You can count on it. You can count on it. But God's right. And you're right. I have a feeling they're worlds apart. He says again, But unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. You see, the truth and unrighteousness, they're set contrary to one another. The truth is the gospel which is the gospel, by the way, where he says, wherein the righteousness of God is revealed, that truth is set against this contention, which is to obey not the truth, but obey unrighteousness. He says, indignation and wrath. He's not talking about people killing folks here. He's not talking about Achmenejad or whatever wild-named creature gets raised up to a position of authority in this world and worries everybody to death. He's talking about folks who obey not the gospel, believe not the truth. He says to the Ephesians, he says, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Don't ever let anybody minimize sin of any kind to you. He said, this is why the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. And then John, again, when he gets that, or John the, uh, the apostle in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, he's shown by the Holy Spirit for us to see, by the way, 
that the whole Christ-rejecting world, the whole Christ-rejecting religious world, will be crying out in the face of His wrath. They said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Little Jesus boy. No. Just that little picture, you know, of that fellow carrying that little lamb in his... That's one of the first pictures I ever remember seeing in somebody's house. My, my cousin's house, I think it was. That little... That man, long hair, and got that staff, and he's carrying that little lamb. This says the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Revelation 14, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Oh, Jesus would never let that happen to me. He said he would. The angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. This is the New Testament. I saw another angel. I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Somebody said, hell ain't no joke. It ain't no cuss word. It's the eternal wrath of God. One of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. God's as a genius in His judgment as He is in His salvation. And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. They shall never see life, but experience the wrath of a thrice holy God remaining upon them, abiding upon them, Worlds without end. No prospect of hope or relief or pardon or of change. But, but, there's another people. There's that other line. And because of the sovereign mercy... You see, that's the glorious thing. When God talks about His sovereignty, 
He says it in a positive, glorious, and gracious way. He says, I will have mercy. I'm going to have it on whom I will. But they're glad to know it, that I'm going to have mercy. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. You see, there's a people, as I said, who though by nature are the exact same way as every other son and daughter of Adam, there is a people who will not suffer eternal death and who will never know the wrath of God. Because God has made them to differ. As a matter of fact, if you turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5 and look down at that ninth verse, I'm not going to turn there, I've got it in my notes, but I'll, I'll read it to you. This is the Apostle Paul writing to these believers in a place called Thessalonica, which would be just like Almond or wherever it is in the world. Look at that ninth verse of chapter 5. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, (laughs) but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Now, if ever the Bible is a book about good news, right there it is. If you have any sense of God, if you have any sense of your own sin and sinfulness, this would be good news to you. You can talk about free will all you want to. You can glory in man's will all you want to. Or his decision. God's appointment of anything can never be altered by man's decision. What God did before time, purposed before time, cannot be altered by something that you and I do in time. You understand that? For God hath not appointed, ordained us to wrath. But rather than that, that would almost be good news if it stopped right there, wouldn't it? That wouldn't get you to heaven. That wouldn't make you righteous before God. He says, but to obtain salvation. I love that word salvation. It's bigger than any of us. Past tense, present tense, future tense. Salvation from sin. Salvation from the power of sin. Salvation from Satan. And as 
was just said, and I'm grateful more and more for each day that passes, salvation from self. That's who I need to be safe Self. By our Lord Jesus Christ. If that had said anything else in that last phrase, I'd have never had it. If he said by by doing your best, by working real hard, by giving all your money, by trying, we'd be lost. By our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Almighty God, because He would, because He works all things after the counsel of His own will, because He will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy, He purposed to save a people from this race of sinners, from all their sins, to glorify Himself. You see, until we get off this matter of salvation being everything for us, and not first and most importantly for God, we'll never see this thing. I'll never forget what Brother Scott Richardson said. He said, before God can do anything for you, He's got to do something first for Himself. That's what this is all about. And He chose them in Christ before the world was. One verse in Ephesians 1 tell you that. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit entered into a covenant to bless this people with an everlasting salvation based upon the Son's obedience, which is, I think primarily, what Paul calls in another place, His obedience unto death, even the death of the cross. Do you know there ain't never been no other death like that death? That's the death of the cross. And to buy this death on the cross, to ratify this covenant by the shedding of His blood and laying down of His life and enduring the wrath of God in their place. Our brother was just talking about Noah being in that ark. But do you know that the same judgment, the same wrath of God that was due all those people outside of the ark, it was due those same people inside the ark. But they were safe because that wrath beat against the ark. I just got a feeling that was a bad, bumpy ride. Why? Because God would have them to have some sense of the judgment that was taking place, of the wrath that was being poured out against all the world at that time. 
and yet they were safe because all of that wind and rain and whatever it involved, it was buffeting that ark, it was coming up against that ark, it was bruising that ark, which was a picture of Christ crucified. And they were safe. They were safe. And that's why Christ's blood is called the blood of the everlasting covenant. Because on that cross, and as a man for men, the man Christ Jesus, appointed of God, the sinless, perfect, gloriously holy God-man. I'm real weird. When I, if I type that in my notes somewhere, I type it capital G-O-D, capital M-A-N, I make it one word. Somebody said he's as much God as if he wasn't a man. He's as much man as if he wasn't God. But really, he's the God-man. He's the one unique person of all eternity. Never been another like Him. The immutable, unchanging, gloriously holy Son of God. And what's He saying? He said, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? Why do you think he said that? For us to hear. Not for the Father to hear. Not just to be saved himself in an expression of agony. But for so such sinners as we are, for the object of his mercy, so we could hear. Because if in that hour Richard, on that cross, as my substitute, hanging in my place before divine justice, a representative man, the surety, everything describing what he does for his people, if he bore it, I don't ever have to bear it. I don't ever have to bear it. And it seems like to me that ought to be good news for a sinner. Whoever this us is, if it says he's not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation in Jesus Christ, if there is this line of mercy and free grace and blessing and salvation, a distinguished people, I want to know something about them. Does your conscience in any way tell you you're deserving of God's wrath? I'll tell you this. Self-righteousness will squeeze any sense of being deserving of God's wrath out till you can't even feel it anymore in your conscience. The more you think of yourself the more you're proud of yourself, the more you rest in your own works, 
The more you rest in your own self-righteousness, the more you glory in what you've done and who you are and all, the more that just squeezes out any real sense of what we are as sinners before God. And only the Spirit of God can make us know it. You see, that's what men are really afraid to die about. If all that verse says was that it's appointed unto man once to die, that you know, that'd be all right. But it says, and after this, the judgment. You see, the only hope for us is that Christ did on that cross tread the winepress of God's wrath in our place. Turn over to Revelation chapter 19 just a minute. Revelation chapter 19. You know, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 19. And look down at verse 11. You see, every, every vision given to John, every vision given to every Old Testament prophet had to do with Christ. And I saw heaven opened... And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness does he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Could this be the same one the prophet was talking about that was coming from Eden with dyed garments? Mighty to save the Lord Jesus Christ. And and His name is called the Word of God. The Word that was with God, the Word that was God, the Word that was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father. And the armies which were in heaven followed Him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of His sword, out of His mouth goeth the sharp sword, that with it He should smite the nation, and He shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. When he hung there on that cross, and before then, when he talked about that cup, he says that's the cup of the fierceness of God's wrath. And as the substitute of His people, and I'm just speaking symbolically, but He put that cup to His holy mouth and He drank it down to the last drop and dregs 
Somebody said he drunk damnation dry. The wrath, the just wrath of God was like a sword that God commanded to smite the shepherd and he ran it all the way to the hill. And he did this for his elect. He did this for his children. He laid down his life for his sheep. He purchased this church with His own blood. He did this for His bride. But I don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. And so He commands that the gospel of this good news be preached. He says, Go ye to all the world, preach the gospel. Because the Holy Spirit knows who they are. And He's going to attend the preaching of the gospel. You know what it means to evangelize? Somebody said, well, that means to go preach the gospel. Well, yes, but it means more than that. Because that word is a word that's connected to our word eulogize. which means to speak high things of somebody, especially somebody that's died. That's what this gospel is all about. He distinctly describes it in this way. He says it is the gospel wherein the righteousness of God is revealed. Which means that God is right to deliver from wrath all His people because He has poured out that wrath on their substitute and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has done righteously. He has saved them in a righteous way. He has made them righteous. Now, I'll let Brother Richard tell you all about that in a moment. Did He do it for me? Is eternal life for me? What has God said? Has he, what's He promised? I know this, the Scripture never says that He loves every person. The Scriptures never say that Christ died for every person. It surely does not say that the Holy Spirit is not that He's trying to save every person. But it says that He has promised life, given eternal salvation, and the gift of this imputed righteousness and redemption from all sin to those who believe this gospel. I believe what God said. Because he says, he that believeth on the Son. What does that mean? It means resting everything on. It means like that man at the poker table when he reaches back there and all his chips. 
Go out to the middle. I'm all in for this. I'm banking everything. Relying all of my soul, my eternal soul's welfare and salvation. The matter of all my sins. Not in anything I am or have done or will do, but in Christ and what He's already done. I believe God. I always like what Paul said when he got caught up in that Eurocladon wind. You remember that Eurocladon wind that's so fierce and the ship finally sunk and he stood up? He said, man, it ain't going to be like it looks. It never is. He said, I believe God. What do you believe about God? I believe that it'll be just like He said. And I'm banking everything on His Word, His Gospel, which is the Gospel of a crucified Christ. Turn one last place, and that's to Romans chapter 5. I just want you to read these glorious words. I can't make you believe it. I don't even know if it's for you or not. But if you can believe it, you will. Romans chapter 5. Look down at verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That'll help you right there if you can be taught of God this. That you were a sinner before you sinned in yourself. Two thousand years ago, I was a sinner in that. Much more than being now justified by His blood. Or as Paul says in Romans 3, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. Through Him. Now, can I believe that? If I can, I can lay my head down on that pillow. And rest. My body is racked with pain. I'm pain-free in the matter of my sin. So we just simply believe on Him. We rest in Him. We trust Him. I've, I've turned it to Him. No, God turned it over to Him before the world ever began. He just makes me know it. And we look for His coming. We view death in new life. And we live, not in fear of wrath, but in hope and expectation. Paul says, "...and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come."
He delivered us from the wrath to come. Us? I tell you when we're us. When we quit being them. And believe what God has said.